Hey, welcome back to Ruby Rogues. This week on our panel, we have Valentino Stoll. Hey now. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And this week we have a special guest that is Alex Ivanchik. I hope I said that right. You got it. Yeah, with all the technical difficulties, I'm like, oh, I forgot what he said. Anyway, do you want to tell people real quick why you're famous and exciting to talk to? Sure, yeah. So I'm not so much sure about uh, famous and exciting, but I'm Alex and I work on the product infrastructure team at Gusto, which you know we call ourselves the all-in-one people platform. Gusto offers payroll, benefits, HR, wow. and a bunch of other stuff to small and large businesses. And at Gusto, I work on a lot of different product infrastructure kind of things, but my main focus for the past two years or so has been around product modularization. Nice. I think that kind of ties into what we're talking about today because uh, we ran across your article. It came out in January. It says how a how-to guide for Ruby packs, Gusto's gem ecosystem for modulizing Ruby applications. And I started looking through this and because I was like, Ruby packs, I hadn't really heard of Ruby packs. And maybe this is something that I just haven't had the opportunity to use. I don't know if it's a well-established thing out there that I didn't see, but it looks like it's just a gem that includes a bunch of functionality. What? Why don't you just tell me what I got wrong <laughs> as far as what it is? Like, what is a pack and what, sure. what do you use it for? Yeah, yeah, no, nothing you got wrong. You know, a pack is, uh, packs are a new concept. It's something that Gusto and, and myself uh, are trying to not necessarily popularize. I don't necessarily care if it's popular per se, but we want to try to solve problems around Ruby modularization. And just to back up for a second, you know, a lot of us are familiar with Gems, which is the Ruby community's solution for packaging and distributing Ruby code. The thing right. with gems is that in order for something to be a gem, it has to have technically perfect boundaries. And by that, I mean, you have to be very strict about your dependencies. You can only reference things that are within your gem or within your dependencies. Now, this is where it made it really hard to use gems in an existing application, such as Gusto's. Gusto's application uh -huh. was this big entangled monolith with aspirational boundaries. You know, we had a lot of things we thought should be maybe in a gem here or there, but it was all uh, entangled like any real organic system. So mm -hmm. packs are kind of like a lightweight gem to do something that we call gradual modularization. You can basically put things in a pack and then use this other ecosystem of tools to, in a to kind of give you a template, to kind of give you some guidance to arrive at those boundaries within the code base. Okay. So I'm kind of imagining a couple of different ways this could go, right? And on your blog post, it looked like you might get like a pack is a pack around different functionality that all kind of live in the same place. Like there's a Rubocop pack, right? So it, it includes extra cops and stuff like that for Rubocop that make it do stuff or things like that. But the way you described it, it almost sounded like you also might be packaging up your own code for a lack of a better way to put it and, and creating the boundaries that way. So yeah, is it one, the other, or both? Yeah, so, so we tend to think of packs first and foremost as a way of drawing domain boundaries around uh, products and business domains. So for example... You know, if you have a large application, for example, at Gusto, we need to pay people through payroll. Mm -hmm. So we, and of course, this is all kind of oversimplified, but the idea is we might have a, a payroll pack and a okay. payments pack. 
And, you know, a company like Gusto, when you're first starting, payments and payroll may be inextricably sort of coupled. You know, the only time we're paying people is through payroll. But as our software system grows, we find other places we, we want to pay people in other ways. So we want to start to decouple these systems. And to do that, we start to create these packs and solidify and improve the boundaries between them. I gotcha. For our book club in January, we read Clean Architecture. And Uncle Bob talks about the idea of components. And it's kind of the same idea, right? And then, of course, he mm-hmm. gives you permission as your app evolves. And you kind of brought this up, right? To find some of those other boundaries, right? Where, yeah, initially, you only had one thing calling the other, the other thing. And so they were more or less just one thing, right? Because it was just one set of functionality. But yeah, now I've got two or three or four other components that rely on this subset of this one component. So you break it off into another component. And that's effectively what you're doing with packs. Yeah, yeah. And when I think about breaking up an application, think about modularizing an application, we're not necessarily doing it for its own sake. You know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, right. clean architecture, the, the intent of having a, a good, well-modularized architecture is for some business purpose, whether that be to enable other product optionality, you know, oh, we want to pay people mm-hmm. in other ways. Maybe it's because there are regulatory or compliance reasons. Maybe it's the code is very confusing and we need to debug right. it in isolation. Maintainability, yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, and, and I want to kind of get to the nuts and bolts of packs. A pack, all it is at its, in its bare bones representation is a folder of code. It's just a folder with a bunch of Ruby files in it and other files too. And it has a package YAML at the root of that folder. And it doesn't actually, it doesn't have a bunch of runtime components that change much. It's really just about moving code to different places and then using static analysis tools such as Packwork to figure out what the boundaries are and the, the relationships are between those packs and between those parts of the system. Before we get too far, I think I heard Valentino on mute, so I'm going to let him ask his question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've got a a lot of questions. (laughs) My first one is, I guess, mostly around how is this different than like Rails engines and what made you decide to go in a different direction? I have a feeling that it's more of the shared aspects of this. And I guess that's my follow-up is like, kind of what advantages do you get out of this new PAX portion, is it specifically to reuse pieces in the modularization or is it mostly just having the domain knowledge separated? So yeah, Rails engines are great solutions to modularization as well. And that's what Gusto started with throughout this whole journey to decompose our monolith. We said, oh, you know, Rails engines, they are the way. And what we found was a couple things. For net new projects, Rails engines were worked pretty well for us. You know, they let us put all of our code into one place, keep it isolated. But what if we have an existing big system and we wanted to pull things into a Rails engine? We might think uh, we try to pull one file in and run the test in that Rails engine and realize that that Rails engine depends on a lot of other parts of the system. And as you pull that string, it starts to pull on the entire application because a lot of large Rails applications may be sort of cyclical in nature. You know, the, the dependency structure, everything kind of depends on everything. So Rails engines are are tough because they don't, maybe they don't have this quality of allowing you to adopt them gradually. Whereas with packs, you can start to put everything in a pack. And even without those imperfect boundaries, you, you can use pack work and it'll tell you, 
hey, you say this thing is in a pack and it doesn't depend on these other packs, but actually here are all the relationships that uh, need to be worked out before you can make this an engine. So I like to kind of think of it as potentially a path that that can get you there uh, to an engine. And one other thing I want to add was sometimes if you're working in a Rails engine, you may want to call to an existing system that is not yet an engine. You know, say you have a no- Slack notifier within your application and you need to to hit your Slack API to post an important message about the business. Well, the way to do that with Rails engines is either pull that Slack notifier into a Rails engine or a gem itself, or to perhaps use dependency injection to pass that into the Rails engine in some way. But with Pax, what's nice is that even if you have those perfect boundaries, you can iterate really quickly and perhaps reach outside of that and provide that business value and come back to architectural or structural improvements when the time permits. That makes sense. One other thing that I'm thinking of is that, and I guess it's a trivial thing because you can just figure it out, but Rails engines also, you usually mount them under a specific route. And so you would actually have to change your routing and anything that depended one way or the other. But yeah, I was going to ask the exact same question because I was thinking the same thing. If I need to modularize my Rails app, yeah, why can't I just put them under engines and then just surface it all, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, it's worth, it's always worth trying. You know, I think that trying mm-hmm. it is what gave us the experience to realize it ends up being really, really challenging. Because if you think about how a gem works and, you know, a Rails engine is just a gem right. that connects to Rails through Rail ties and other things like that. Well, Bundler requires that all of the dependencies within a gem's dependency tree are acyclic. So mm-hmm. that means that in order to extract something into a gem, you basically either, you have to start from the leaf notes. You know, you have to start from the things that depend on nothing, pull that into the Rails engine, and then incrementally detangle things until it can fit into the technical requirements of a Rails engine. That's a great right. process. It's, it might lead to really great code with great boundaries, but it'll force you to, to potentially go on a sort of a wild goose chase of detangling things that are not necessarily connected to the types of business value that you want to produce. Yeah. Uh, clean architecture also points out some of the dangers of those cyclical relationships, both from your entities or classes, as well as your components. And so it's it's an interesting conversation to have as to whether or not, yeah, having to untangle those things that way may or may not major code more easy to reason about or things like that. But at the same time, yeah, you're you are forcing a boundary here. And that's that's one thing that's nice is because then you can isolate the the system from things that it doesn't it doesn't need to know about. And you can you can run those packs on their own. And and that's actually a really, really nice thing because yeah, then I if if it's a payments pack, all I care about is whether or not it'll put the payments through, right? Is it is it making the right API calls across the internet? Is it using the right abstraction layer that I put over the top of that in case the API changes, right? And and does it translate the items in my system correctly to go to the other system? Does it, you know, when it receives a response, does it do the right thing? And I don't have to worry about, does the payroll system blah, 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 right? Because the payroll system is in a different pack and it's a different concern. And then, then on the other side, on the payroll system, all I really have to do is double check that it's uh, meeting the contract with the payment system on the other end. And so it keeps it relatively simple. So 
I guess the question is, yeah, then what do the PACs do, right? How do the PACs resolve some of these cyclical dependencies or some of these other issues that you're bringing up with Rails engines that are going to be painful when I try it? Yeah, it's a good question, and uh, I'll do my best to, to try to answer it. So the way that you know, I would recommend an org think about this and go about it is first to just think about their, their key domains and their mental model for how those domains relate. You know, in the case of Gusto, we might say, hey, uh, you know, payroll depends on payments. Payments doesn't depend on payroll, but payments may rely on a Slack utility, a feature flags utility, authorization utility, and so on. And then we create those packs. We say, okay, here's a folder of code called payroll. Here's uh, payments and so on. And then we move the code into those packs. And what we then do is use this tool called Packwork, which was uh, uh, open sourced by Shopify. And what Packwork does is that it'll basically read through all of the pack nodes and create edges between those pack nodes that based on references to to Ruby constants. So it might say, oh, you know, I see that payments depends on payroll here. And what it does is that uh, you can specify the dependencies between packs within the package YAML file. So you say, okay, dependencies for payroll, dependencies are payments and feature flags and so on. And then what Packwork does is it basically takes a diff between the graph that you've declared about how your system should be modeled and the actual graph as it relates to the code base. And that diff basically represents the delta of effort needed to, I guess, actualize the architecture that you're describing. I'm not sure I completely followed that. Sure, yeah. It, so it, it, it might just be my brain going, no, no. I, I don't, it's a different idea than what I've done in the past. Yeah, it definitely took me a long time to... Think about it. You know, at first, I when I first thought about all this, first heard about Packwork, I thought, I don't know, I don't, uh, I don't get it. You know, we have engines, we have gems. Ruby has a private constant feature. Why can't I use those? And well, we certainly can use those. There's, there's still a tool in our tool belt. What I what I really liked was when I reflected back to various times that I tried to extract something into an engine, what I found was that I had a mental model for the final state of that engine. You know, all the all the APIs that it would expose, what it would depend on, what it wouldn't depend on, uh, etc. But that final state that I had had to be represented, I guess, in a document, in some documentation I wrote, and sort of tribal knowledge somewhere. And there wasn't a way that I could follow some sort of template to allow me to get to that stage. So what's what I what's really cool about packwork and this idea of packs is that you can basically describe the final state of your system. You can put things into a pack and say this is what I would like it to depend on and this is the these are the APIs that I want to expose. And then what packwork will do is it'll say here are all the places that you have violated your state of dependencies. Here are all the places where things are using private API. So now that process of trying to go from entangled to componentized or modularized, that becomes a sort of a mechanized process where you can follow a to-do, basically produces a to-do list where it says, hey, if you do everything on this to-do list, you, you'll be able to turn this into a Rails engine. I'm not sure if that added any clarity, uh, still trying to work on my pitch a little bit. <laughs> 
So it sounds like this is like an elaborate dependency manager. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, in a know, way, uh, I mean, it, it does more building than anything. I think from what it, what you're saying. But I, I'm I'm super curious about the static analysis portion of this. I know that's just sure. kind of like a tool of working with Packwork because I for the longest time I've <laughs> I've I've wanted to have like the ability to not just require the entire Rails ecosystem w- with every file, right? I know there was a, a while ago with somebody from Stripe that was working on their own loader to load individual files and be able to do some static analysis to also not do that. How are you guys working with that and are, do you have it like can you use Packwork in that way where it works with an autoloader or something to handle that resolution? So let's see. Uh, I think I understand what you're uh, what you're asking. So the one way that we've used this toolchain is once you start describing the dependencies between between these packs, when you run tests, you can use the dependency graph and use sort of first principles about dependency graphs to know how one change could affect other parts of that dependency graph. You know, when you change Rails, your application might break, but when you change your application, Rails itself is not going to break for everyone else just because of what depends on what. Mm-hmm. So we have this feature called conditional builds, where when someone pushes the CI with a change, it will only run tests for the portions of the application that depend on the thing being changed. So that's kind of one way that you can build tooling on top of the dependency graph. In terms of loaning, we don't yet segment or manipulate how you know Zitework will auto-load or eagerly load portions of the application. It's certainly a dream of ours is that we can use this ecosystem to effectively, you know, there's this whole debate with microservices versus monolith. And usually that's the first decision that someone makes. They say, okay, I want this to be in the monolith or I want this to be in a microservice. And what we hope is that by using this sort of tool chain, someday we can get to a point where once you've effectively modularized enough of the dependencies of your system, the tool chain itself can pick up on the fact that something can be deployed as a separate application and and do that programmatically. That's just kind of the North Star vision at the moment. So I guess the next question that I have is... At what point does it start making sense to modularize, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it sounds like a solution to a problem that I may not sure. have. Definitely. Awesome question. And yeah, you know, we we don't necessarily want to modularize just to modularize because, you know, we live in a world of constraints and businesses only have so much money to work on certain things. There might not be a point. So we modularize because it makes sense, you know, because it's maybe it enables new product options. Uh, maybe it reduces duplicate work, you know, maybe instead of everyone rebuilding their own, you know, Slack notifier, you modularize a little Slack notifier. Uh, maybe you're doing it because the complexity is too high and you need to be able to think about certain components in isolation. On the flip side, there's definitely a lot of times you don't need to modularize. Perhaps the you know, every time you modularize, it creates indirection between something. Having payroll and payments coupled as one means that you don't have to make that jump of thinking about how these and kind of going through these different interfaces. It's sort of one concept. Maybe there's just other big, bigger fish to fry. You know, maybe a system is working. Why change it? And there are other business opportunities. So it really comes down to what are the needs of the business and do the promises of modularization 
uh, do the folks who are on the ground and have, have all spoke with one another, do they agree that it'll help solve the problem? Right. So it sounds like you have to have a conversation about it. You have to talk to the people who are involved, the stakeholders, and figure Definitely. it out. There's not, there's not a hard and fast rule. No. And if anyone feels like they uh, found a rule, I would definitely love to hear it because, you know, I've still been trying to answer this question and, and provide some sort of guidance on it. But, you know, I think it's a it's a time when you, know, you can really trust the ICs, you know, our individual contributors, as we call them. You know, the folks who are making the changes to their system, they are often the ones who are the best equipped to say, hey, this system is too hard to change. Everything is too coupled and I can't break my change that down into small, small pieces. Or uh, if I keep rebuilding the same thing, we should, we should extract this, this thing. So I don't think that's kind of passing down guidance from, you know, top down necessarily makes sense, but giving, you know, empowering people to have that opportunity that if they think that spending time on structural improvements is worth their time, I think it's enough to just encourage them and to, to give them that space and to give them the mentorship to do that work. You know, the, talking about the process, one thing I always find myself doing, anytime I find kind of the domain boundaries starting to get blended with, you know, things that shouldn't be blended, right, is start breaking it out into its own, like, section in the code base, right, with just straight up namespacing and trying to mm-hmm. tackle the problem just from a namespace perspective. So, right. I mean, if you think about, like, your transition with Packwork, like at what point in that, like setting up just namespace boundaries, are you like, okay, this kind of really belongs in its own pack? Like, where does that blend start? Like, where you're like, okay, it's ready. Like, it really, are there deciding factors for you where you're like, definitely should be its own pack versus the namespace is fine? Yeah. So I would say, short answer, no, as far as uh, a, a hard guideline, you know, I found with all of this work, is that there are very rarely hard and fast rules. Uh, that being said, uh, one thing I, I do want to mention is uh, one of the tools in this ecosystem, Rubocop Packs, has a, a Rubocop for namespace enforcements. So if you turn it on for a pack, it'll basically enforce that everything in that pack ha- is under a single global namespace. Because one of the things that we found was that in our large Rails application is we just had so much pollution in the global namespace. And not only was that tough for collisions and things like that, but also trying to create a bounded context as some folks in the industry refer to it as, you know, this like surrounding around piece of the code. But yeah, in terms of like when to put something in its own pack, I'm not sure. One of the things that we really like about packs is that the overhead for a pack is very low. And this is something that's, I think, a little bit different compared to a gem. Sometimes, you know, with a gem, there's uh, sometimes quite a bit of boilerplate, especially for an engine. But what's nice with a pack is the overhead is so uh, low to put something in its own pack. So you can make something that's a single file, you know, with a single little helpful utility, or a huge subservice can be its own pack. And I think it really comes down to, if I keep thinking that's, one part of a pack is totally unrelated to its its neighbors within that pack. And my mental model is that there is a, a really well-defined relationship between separate components of the, of the pack. Then I might, I might break that up. 
So I'm curious too then, because I'm trying to imagine, you know, using packs and like where we're kind of like where all of the features really start to shine, right? Sure. So like what about like working within with these smaller, more modular pieces of it, like way outperform or the benefits are just so much better than working with like a strict namespace or gems or engines or something like that, that are just so clear, right? Like where you're like, oh yeah, well, we would, wouldn't use anything else. Yeah, it's it's a good question. And and one thing I should say is that the the tool is a lot of the value from the tool comes in how it's used. You know, it's it's is it uh are we drawing the right boundaries? And I think that if you're using a tool and you know the the the, the boundaries, domain boundaries aren't great, then so, someone might not get a lot of value from from the tool. But you know, it's we actually found value in it right from the start. You know, the very first thing we did was we we had had uh, ownership of code. We have this one of the, the tools in this tool chain. Uh, it's called Code Ownership. So we had all the code in our system uh, owned by a team. So the first thing we did, and I, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but we moved the code into packs based on the, the, the team who owned the code. And that was sort of intentionally bad. You know, you, you don't want to divide code based on organizational boundaries. But it started to push folks to think about Okay, what is the domain? What are the domain model for the code that I own? Whereas if you think about traditional Rails applications, all of the models are in one place. All of the, you know, controllers are in one place. But that means that when you're starting to work on a feature, you're jumping across these architectural layers. You know, your, your, your diff isn't really co-located. It, the diff that you make is spread across the whole code base. So we noticed basically immediately was that our diffs tended to be more isolated. You know, it was like, hey, I'm working within one place of the code base. But yeah, other other than that, I'm not sure if that answered your question. Yeah, I think it's starting to make more sense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, you know, what you're talking about here with this is, yeah, it's easier to keep track of changes. It's easier to manage those parts of the code base on their own test them on their own and then right you just manage the boundary as far as how everything else connects to it and so as long as you're explicit about how things talk to it and how it talks to other things then it becomes a lot simpler because the things you're doing now only affect this small part of the code or at least that ideally yeah like let's one thing i one way i think about it is in a really large system we want to be able to make changes at a really large scale you know in order to have a lot of leverage as an organization the problem is if you have a really, in order to make large changes, you kind of need to have some sort of pattern at scale, some sort of structure at scale where you can back up and say, okay, this is how the, the system is intended to be laid out. You know, this depends on that. This depends on that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where sometimes the most value comes in because what we found with gems and engines is that it's really hard to use. I mean, they're, they're great tools if you can get there and if you start in an engine. And, and of course, it's necessary if you want to distribute and publish your, your library. But uh, using what we call unbuilt components, you know, so where you have a gem just within your application, it becomes hard. To, it's really hard to take a, a, a large entangled application and divide it into gems that have, you know, an acyclic dependency graph. Ends up being just mm-hmm. a, a, an incredibly challenging technical problem. On the other hand, with packs and with pack work, arriving at that that whole mental model where everything is in a pack, everything is in sort of a modularized uh, folder, is 
considerably easier. And it lets you sort of bypass things that are incredible technical challenges that have relatively low value. And that's what we found sometimes with engines is that it forces you to, to attempt to solve really, really hard technical challenges in your system just to reach a technical ideal of it being in an engine. You know, but then it may not actually have a lot of business value to solve that problem. So what we're left with with Packwork is that we may say, hey, this depends on this, but actually there are what Packwork calls violations to that. There are places where the system doesn't actually respect the stated boundaries. But then the, the beauty is you have the freedom to choose whether or not to invest in that structural change. You can say, hey, it's worth the cost to better modularize that reference, you know, to, to decouple something or to invert a dependency or so on. Or you can leave it be and move on, you know, move on to other things. It kind of gives you a lot of freedom to tackle the problem from different angles rather than the angles that extract into a Rails engine forces you in. Right. So I'm curious what level of modularization we're talking, right? Because let's say like one of the biggest problems with a giant Rails monolith starts to become like the user model, right? Or accounts or something oh, like definitely. that. Right. Where it's like yes. the most requested and used like dependency in the app and all yep. the apps related to it, right? Like how do you start sharing something like that within oh. packs, right? Like how does that like it's not really top down right at this point because it's becoming modular like yes. how do you start sharing like these key pieces like a user model or something like this yeah. across all the packs that maybe are interdependent by nature because they all depend on the or- origin code <laughs> absolutely great great question and this is top of mind actually at gusto at the moment so our core models you know some people call them god models or spaghetti models or, or something like that and yeah, so those models tend to grow very, very large and they tend to have, to, they tend to be the sort of de facto entry point into a lot of APIs. You know, you say, so for Gusto, it's a uh, company and employee mostly, user two, but actually company and employer are the biggest ones. So let's say company and maybe we have a method like company dot payroll processed or something, making that up. Well, we also have company dots, you know, benefits process and every other API in the system. And the it, you know people keep adding columns to it. And it becomes a central point of entanglement, where, as you said, everything depends on it, and it depends on everything. So this, you know, you can't extract that into an engine, you know, because it depends on everything. It would it would it'd be so hard. So we did something kind of, uh, maybe kind of silly. We pulled the company and employee models into a pack uh, called company spaghetti model. Uh, that's what the pack is called. And it, it's pretty illustrative. You know, it says, Hey, this is spaghetti. And the dependency list is basically empty, which means that people will see a, what's called a dependency violation if they add their domain into company. So basically we're using this system to kind of, it's kind of like a Rubocop for preventing future entanglement, preventing future growth of this model. And what we've done is we started to actually work down that list, burn down that list of dependency violations in company. And so far, we've removed probably like a dozen columns from our company model, you know, a bunch of associations, a ton of methods. And our goal is that uh, Augusto, a a company is a a really simple concept, but it's these other systems that extends the idea of a company without necessarily affecting that core model, you know? So yeah, and then in essence, what that means is that Everything depends on company, but we can set that long-term goal 
that company itself doesn't depend on it. Right. So building on that, I, I just had a follow up like, where do you start? Like, how do you start pulling pieces of that off in, in meaningful chunks? Right. Like, yeah. if you have like this specific company thing that's shared across a few different things, like I imagine the naming of that is going to start to get strange too. Like, do you have a process for that? Is there something Packwork has that helps it in figuring these things out? Or is that more of like just an analysis on your part? So Packwork will tell you what company depends on with, you know, various sort of caveats about what that means exactly. But how do you start pulling things out? I guess like slightly painfully, you know, you, you look at a column and you say, hey, this definitely doesn't belong on the core company model. This is this belongs somewhere else. It belongs in a different domain. And from there, there are a couple of strategies you can use. You know, one thing that you can use is you can say, okay, I'm going to build an API to access the data from that column and migrate everything to use that API rather than call company.myColumn. And then once everything is using that API, which sort of presents a facade of existing in a different pack, then you can start to swap out that implementation and have it point to, uh, you know, you, you point to a different model. You know, you, you, you start double writing to that column and then you switch over the read and then you stop double writing all while kind of trying to think about N plus ones that you may be introducing by moving the column. But actually what we started with was we just looked at methods. Uh, just plain old methods, even, and we move those methods off of company. So instead of company dot my method, we may have my namespace colon colon or my namespace dots something about company. You know what I mean? And so it still might actually ask company for that information, but we begin to move that API off of company, kind of allowing us to start to swap that implementation. Yeah, you're inverting the dependency so that you have exactly. an interface that you can call instead of, uh, and this is spelled out again in, in clean architecture, but you invert the dependency so that your graph isn't cyclical anymore. Exactly. And I just want to call out that sometimes doing this has no business value. Sometimes doing it has no clear business value. But take company, for example. Uh, we have a whole team, as you can imagine, that wants to focus on make, bringing more people into Augusta. And, you know, they want to make it easier for people to sign up. But when you have a, a large spaghetti model that people keep adding to, every time you add a new val, you add a new column, you add a new validation, trying to create that model becomes more challenging, not only for end users who may have to specify more information in order to become part of the platform, but for users who are doing test setup, you know, and they need to create a company. Now, oh my gosh, I have to create the universe just to test my feature. So yeah, I don't know where I was going with that, but yeah. No, it, it makes sense, right? Because at the end of the day, what you're looking at is not just the cyclical dependencies and how many of those you have, but it's also the complexity of the API surface between between modules or between packs. And so the more you have to do, the more work you have to do, the more specification you have to meet, the harder it is. And yeah, so the the simpler you can keep it and the easier it is to keep track of this stuff and the more that you can extract a lot of that dependency layer out to a module or, you know, even a mix-in that, that gives people a way of, of getting the information they need without depending directly on the model, 
it it allows you to redirect a lot of that stuff and keep your code a lot simpler. And anyway, it 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 pays off, like you said, not just for the coder who, at this point, I, I know I need these four things out of the the company module or the company pack, but also for the like you said, the end user who now has a higher constraint on what they can do, and and it makes it more rigid. And you want elastic code that you can flex and play with a little bit and the 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 heavier you put that burden the harder it is to change and that's ultimately painful when it comes to writing code because if you change it and you mess up with the uh, specification and you have multiple things depending on it instead of depending on that that shim layer that module that you've created you start having more issues and it it makes the rest of your code more rigid and so that that's the game you're playing is you're restricting that API surface by inverting the dependency and putting that module out there. And then you're cleaning up all your code because you only have to care about those handful of things and not putting those constraints and that rigidity into the next module or the next pack over that has to depend on your company. And then you can, like you said, you can start teasing some of these other pieces out. And hopefully, eventually, your dependency graph will eliminate a lot of the, the cycles that you have and it'll simplify the interface to the, the company pack to the point where it's just something that you deal with on a regular basis and you don't have the major issues that you're talking about. You got it. It's so, something we're still working on, something we're still learning a lot about. And I think it's part of the evolution of a system. You know, I think that if someone sees their core models growing and growing larger and larger, that isn't necessarily something they need to fret about immediately. Because, you know, scrappiness or trade-offs about design are, well, they're trade-offs, you know, and if moving faster by not only maybe do we want to not always focus on the interface in the beginning, but we don't necessarily know the boundaries. We don't necessarily know the domains when we're first learning about them, when a startup or even a large org is learning about their customers' needs they don't know, they don't have that shape in their head of what the model is that fits those needs. So we just sort of throw it together. You know, we're like, ah, this works, this this solves the problem. But then after a while, we're like, oh gosh, this whole thing kind of kind of feels like a Rude Goldberg machine. You know, the domino hits the lighter, which burns the string and the ping pong ball falls. Yeah. And uh, so then, you know, starting to back up and say, let's, let's put some structure on this. So that's kind of what mm-hmm. we're, we're on about. So I want to get into implementation a little bit. So let's say that I identified something that I want to move into a pack. How do I use pack work to do it? Yeah, so let's see. Uh, first thing I want to plug, if I may, is that there is a community Slack server for questions and help and talking about all this stuff. And I'm not sure if we can put something like that in the show notes. Or Definitely. Awesome. I also have a, a link here, tinyurl.com slash slack. So I hope that works by the time this goes out still. Folks want to try that. And that's just a very a welcoming community of industry professionals and, and people interested in Ruby and Rails modularity. So yeah, great place to ask questions. Now uh, back to your question, implementation. So Packwork itself doesn't give many tools to create a pack or to move files into packs. It gives you a declarative specification for defining a pack, but yeah, it doesn't give you the tools. So we have open sourced a lot of our tool chain around this. That's kind of all in the uh, github.com slash ruby at scale 
is the, the, the org where all this stuff is. And that's linked in the blog post too. Uh, so there's this gem we open source called Use Packs, where as the name suggests, all about using packs. And it exposes a CLI bin slash packs. And uh, it has a kind of fancy interactive thing going on, which I think is kind of nifty. So you type bin packs and then it gives you... So after you've set up packs, I should back up. You have to first set up Pax Rails. And what Pax Rails does is that it tells Rails to add packs to the auto load paths for Rails. So basically, as long as you're following the structure specified in the readme, you won't have to mess around too much with Rails config in order to get things to load the way you want. That's the first step. And then what bin packs does, what you use packs, is it lets you create a pack. You know, you give it a name, it creates a folder with a package YAML. There's a move uh, function, which is kind of a fancy Rails informed utility for file.move, basically. It moves the file, it moves its spec file, it updates references in RuboCop to do so you can move files without thinking about all the other stuff you have to do. It has a little bit of like a plugin system if your architecture has other things that are coupled to fi- uh, file structure and file location. But that's kind of all there is to it. You know, you, you, you create a pack, which is just, um, make their, however you pronounce that, you know, you, you create a directory and you, you move a file into it. And then pack work, it being a static analysis tool. You run Packwork tool and it will basically, you know, do some AST magic and, and parsing of files to determine the relationship between uh, the packs based on the code that's in those packs. Nice. So are the packs then, because the, the way you're talking about it now, it sounds like a pack isn't necessarily then like an internal gem or something. It could just be a collection of code within your Rails app or your Ruby app. That, that doesn't get loaded that way. It's just pulled in through load paths, just like anything else. That's right. And that's something that I really love about it is that this whole system is, for all intents and purposes, it doesn't and shouldn't affect your runtime at all. Besides, of course, namespace changes that you may or may not make. But actually, uh, when you move a file between packs, something that we love is that you don't have to change the namespace at all which means you know all that move really is is just changing the auto loaded portion of that path but all of the references to the constants you know constants classes or modules defined within the moved file those can remain the same you know it's the same definition because the the path doesn't define it doesn't become part of the namespace definition if that's it. Mm-hmm. And not to get too much into like the nitty gritty of Autoloading and all that stuff in Rails, but yeah, yeah, that's an, that's for another episode. Valentino, sure. I feel like I've been hogging the mic. Do you, do you have stuff you want to jump in with? Yeah, I wanted to uh, talk about testing because I, I mean, one of the biggest hopes that I have for like static analysis tools like this is that you know it doesn't take an hour or a half hour or whatever it may be to run the entire test suite for like a one file change, right? Like, do you start to see sure. that? using packs or is there still the same kind of problem okay so yeah a lot to unpack no pun intended uh let's see so first off i I should mention is that something cool with packs rails is that the test files are co-located next to the code they're testing so you may have like packs payments app models payroll or not payments uh, you know 
app models, uh, Nacha entry. And then you have PAX payments spec models or, or whatever the path may be. Um, so that's the first thing. And that's just kind of nice in a huge system for finding uh, spec files, even though you know you may have your own kind of hotkeys and stuff. But in terms of test speedups, so you know every time you just to get to the principles for a second, every time you run a test, you need to load all of the code that you depend on. So if your code is still entangled, even if it's in a pack, well, you still need to load that code, and that's something that Rails through Zitework, the auto loader will do for you automatically. It'll automatically... Uh, so if, you're, if your code depends on the rest of your application and the application depends on, on everything, then you won't see any improvements. The improvements come when you begin to disentangle things and begin to manage that dependency graph and start to isolate something. At which point, in theory, uh, the less code will load. And actually, in practice, we only run a subset of our tests in CI based on, on what's changed. So yes, we short answer, I guess, uh, is yes, that we do see some improvements there, but it's not immediate, you know, and you really got to do all the hard work of, of going in there and, and isolating code. So at what point do you get to the, to where you can like safely have your CI run only specific tests that, cause you're using static analysis so heavily in packs, right? Mm-hmm. Like that you could know the graph of, okay, well, we know this won't affect pretty much 90% of the entire application. So we don't need to run tests for 90, you know, 90% of our test space. Like, are you there? Like, how long did it take to get there if you are there? We are definitely not there yet. There's, you know, there's still a lot of entangled code and, and, and it's not because of anything we we've done right, you know, or done wrong, excuse me. It's because, I think of, of things we've done right. You know, we, we're still alive as a business and doing really, really well because of the trade-offs we made and all the hard work everyone put in. But you know, now, now we're facing different problems, uh, and yeah, we're, we're we're still pretty far from it. You know, and there's a lot of work ahead of us to really isolate things and and to make our dependency graph acyclic so we can really unlock the full potential of conditional builds. So I guess my follow-up would be like, is is there anything that you wish you had done that could set you up for a better place now? Like, is there sure. anything you could do like retro or like not retro, but like, you know, preemptively yeah. to help make that transition better? Sure. Well, so I, I, I first want to add a disclaimer that hindsight's twenty twenty, And perhaps if we went back and we did all the things I'm going to say, then we would have spent too much time on technical excellence and we wouldn't have, you know, found product market fit. So that's the, that's my disclaimer. So, uh, yeah, take everything I say with a grain of salt. That being said, let's see. I think that probably would have pushed on keeping those, you know, God models, the spaghetti models, keeping them lightweight and making sure that extensions of those concepts live in isolated modules from the get-go and always kind of thinking how easy will it be for me to completely delete this feature? Is it, is it entangled within the existing system or is it, is it well isolated? I think I would have, you know, or I would recommend going back, you know, not necessarily spending a ton of time just doing whatever and then spending a long period of time in with structural work and refactor work, 
but interleaving those activities, you know, doing a little bit of, okay, I'm going to try to find that product market fit. Okay. I think I found something. I'm going to kind of come back, clean up the system and improve it, improve it, create the APIs I want, fix up the dependencies that I just kind of hacked together because I needed to make it work and do that cleanup. You know, I think so often we consider a project done when there's still a lot of cleanup, whether that be, Oh, I have to stop double writing this column and drop the other one or, you know, so on and so forth. But really like making sure to commit to that cleanup, perhaps. Makes sense. We're kind of getting toward the end of our time and I need to uh, prep for another call. So sure, I'm going to start heading us toward wrap up. But if people want to learn more about this or connect with you on the internet, where do they find you? Yeah, so not on too many of the social media things these days, but you can email me, alexyvanchik at gmail.com. I'm on that Slack server that I mentioned. And yeah, really encourage anyone to join. You can be of, of any experience level, beginner to expert. You know, we'd love to have you. Uh, fresh ideas are welcome. And yeah, that's about that's about it. All right, good deal. Now, before we do picks, uh, we added a segment where we talk about what we're working on these days. So, Valentino, what are you working on that people should know about? Yeah, pretty much the same thing. I am working on a AI system for Doximity called Docs GPT that basically lets doctors take advantage of the chat GPT large language model in a healthcare context. And it's just so much fun learning, you know, new ways to adapt AI into it and retrofit it into a business. It's, it's just so much fun and so much potential there. So I've been working heavy in that. Awesome. So what I'm working on, I've kind of talked about all the things I've got going on, figured out I was overextending myself. So I've cut way back and I'm just going to focus on one thing. And so I'm just going to run through what it uh, what it looks like. Uh, so essentially, when I was talking to my business coach and he mentioned, like I said, that I was doing too much. And so he got me to narrow things down. So effectively, I'm going to be doing video series like Rails Casts or Drifting Ruby. And I'm getting ready to launch it. I, I found a platform too, so that'll be my picks that, that I'm going to run it on. But uh, yeah, I want to do things a little bit different from the way that I've seen them done with other folks in their video series. I am going to do at least two videos a week like Rails Cast did, right? One will be free, one will be paid. But the thing I'm going to add on top of it is I want to do a monthly call with the people who are signed up. So, you know, we'll just get on. I'll do a 10, 15 minute presentation on something. I'll let people help me decide what that is if you're signed up. And then we'll do the call. I'm also going to be doing it. So I'm doing one on Ruby or Rails, or I might do two. I might do one on Ruby stuff that's not Rails and one that's Ruby or one that's Rails. But I'm also doing one on JavaScript. I'm doing one on DevTools. So we're thinking, I'm thinking like Docker, Visual Studio Code, Git, that kind of stuff. And then I'm doing one on dev careers, right? So I'm going to start the four of them. And then if you want to buy the overarching membership, that's going to be the full membership. And full members, uh, they're also going to get a bonus call every month. And occasionally I'm going to put out smaller courses and they'll just get access to those. And then when I do get back around to that other stuff, like the conferences or whatever, then you'll get first crack at buying the best seats, basically. So if you're interested in that, go to topendevs.com, click on the sign up link. If you've already signed up for something in the past, you'll get an email from me telling you how to move to the new system. And if you if you haven't, or if you have just a free account, then I'll let you know how to get any freebies that you should have had access to. But from there, yeah, we're, we're just going to pull it ahead. So keep an eye out for that. I've already started recording videos. 
And so, yeah, that's what I'm working on right now. Alex, what are you working on that people should know about? Oh, go ahead. Thank you. Thank you, dude, for sharing that. Sound pretty busy. Uh, so what am I working on? Mostly a lot of this stuff. You know, I, what I found, I've just been kind of constantly humbled by how difficult some of this work is and trying to figure out how to uh, kind of put the right pieces in place so, you know, we can scale our monolith and, uh, you know, give people the tools. Uh, at this immediate time, we are trying to get all of our, our code and our code base to, to be owned by a team. You know, uh, we, as you can imagine, people make changes to code and they leave and then code is left without uh, an owner. So mm-hmm. we are using this open source tool code ownership to make sure that all code is owned and then kind of start to try to give kind of standardize on some metrics that teams can use to assess the kind of ongoing stability and uh, operational kind of capabilities of the product. So stuff like that. Awesome. All right. Well, let's do some picks. Valentino, what do you have in the way of picks? So I've been following the uh, Ruby 30th event on Twitter, and it's it's all in Japanese, the the live event. So I waited, and now it's now it's on YouTube, and you can kind of auto-translate closed captions, which is nice. So I've been going back and watching that. It's kind of wild to, to see all of the responses from the Ruby community on there. So that, that's my pick for, for today. Awesome. I've got a whole bunch of picks I'm going to throw out, so I'm going to go fast. The first one is I'm going to pick a game called The Quacks of Quidlinburg. I always pick a board game at the beginning. Quacks of Quidlinburg, effectively, you have a potion you're trying to brew, and you draw ingredients out of a bag, and you place them in your cauldron, and you're trying to score the highest you can without your potion exploding. And your potion explodes if you get too many white ingredients in your potion, is the way that it goes. So, you, you know, you pull out a green one, you put it down, you pull out a red one, you put it down, you pull out a, you know, and then they're all numbered and you you move up the track. And then you get points, you get more bonuses if you don't explode your potion than if you do. You can still win if you explode some of your potions, but it's a little bit harder. And so you're you're getting money to buy more ingredients, you get victory points. Anyway, it's it's great. I really enjoyed it. You also get gems that look like rubies, which makes me happy. Nice. That you can buy bonuses with. So anyway, Board Game Geek ranks it at a 1.99. So it's right in there at the uh, casual gamer level. You don't have to be a hardcore board game nut like I am to enjoy the game and not feel overwhelmed. Uh, some of the other games I've picked on here, it's like if, if you're not a hardcore gamer, you're just going to you're going to read the rule book and say, nope. But anyway, this one is definitely in the realm of the casual gamer, and it's it's a lot of fun. We played it while we were down in St. George. My wife and I got away with my father-in-law and my sister-in-law and her husband, and we just walked through houses and played games. It was a ton of fun and sat in the hot tub. So a few other picks. I told you I was going to talk about the platform I'm using for the courses. Now, um, I made the mistake of thinking, a course platform, I can build that. And it turns out that I can build that, but it's going to take me a whole lot more time and not really add a ton of value. And so I want to start getting the content out. So I figured out that the CRM I've been using to reach out to sponsors and that we're moving all of our podcast guest outreach to also has a membership suite to it. And so I I cracked that open. I had to pay a little extra to turn it on. But yeah, it's so what I've been using is Pipeline Pro. You can get a lifetime license to the kind of the basic CRM. And then they have marketing and automation add-on, which costs like a hundred bucks a month. 
and then the membership add-on, which is like 50 bucks a month. And so I am still paying a monthly fee for it. But unlike some of the other systems I've used, there's no limit to how much I can put into it. So I can put as many memberships in as I want, any, you know, as many of these other things in as I want. And then you can just sign into the portal and you get access to all of the courses, all of the series and everything else that's involved. So if you sign in and you sign up for like the root rails clips is what I called it. I'm trying to find another name for the Ruby one. I was going to do Ruby clips, but somebody already owns the domain and it's kind of a not safe for work kind of site. So, uh, Anyway, so I'm going to name it something else. But anyway, if I, so, cause I kind of do want to do two series, but you'll get in and it'll show you all of the lessons that I've done or all the tutorials, whatever I decide to call them. It'll show you the meetups and then it'll show you any other resources that we put out. Cause I also want to put together some kind of homework or assignment or something and give people the opportunity to come back and say, Hey, I built the thing that Chuck said to build and here's my example. And then we give feedback on the code. So. Anyway, so yeah, so I really like it. It's really simple to use and is pretty straightforward. And then I don't have to go pay 150 bucks a month to Teachable or something in order to use it. It's just, you know, it's there and, and I can use it the way I want. So overall, I've been really, really happy with Pipeline Pro just for all the stuff that I'm doing with it. If you're going to go set up a system like this, uh, a friend of mine has set his up and he doesn't need all the fancy CRM features. He's using a system called Kartra with a K, K-A-R-T-R-A. So that's another one you may want to look at if you're looking to do courses and stuff like that. So anyway, those are my picks. Oh, one other pick. I watched the last episode of 1923. Of course, they kind of leave you on a cliffhanger. I was hoping they'd, you know, they'd wrap the story up like they did 1883, but they didn't. But anyway, I really enjoyed that. So I'm going to pick that as well. All right, Alex, what are your picks? All right, let's see what I got. So I don't have much in the way of uh, software stuff, but see other sorts of media. I don't know if anyone's into gardening, but living in Vermont, we we like to garden a lot. And I listen to a lot of this podcast called the, the Joe Gardener podcast. And yeah, he gives you the lowdown on you know everything you need to know around soil health and plants, maintenance and care throughout the seasons. Uh, that's really important to, to us and to me personally is um, those sorts of ideas. And gosh, it feels great to grow and eat some of your own food. I love that feeling. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, I just got a notification on my phone that there's a new season of Mandalorian out. You know, I, I saw that Star Wars poster uh, behind you, Charles. So oh yeah, I'm pretty excited about that because I, I really enjoyed the other uh, seasons. Yeah, that one was pretty good. I didn't realize i think i saw something about it on twitter but i didn't realize that they were tweeting about new season being out so that's exciting yeah all right well we're gonna go ahead and wrap it up thanks for coming this was thank you awesome and until next time folks max out